an agreement to say that we are going to transition away from fossil fuels is an agreement to agree to something we already agreed to yesterday mm. without saying it out loud. Everybody knows we need to transition away from fossil fuels. What the agreement doesn't do is provide any comfort to, say, low-lying Pacific nations that we're going to do that any faster. And, and commentators have said, oh, look, the fact that we've referenced the need to transition away from fossil fuels will put pressure on investors to re-scrutinise the nature of their investment in fossil fuels. But at the same time, the language just below that in the draft that speaks to transitionary fuels and speaks to the need for energy security, which looks like it's been lobbed there by a business council, I might add, gives it, the other investors everything they need to to be able to argue to continue with the status quo. So it's a, it's a status quo uh, cop. That's Adam Carroll, partner from EY. He works from the company's Perth offices, looking after its climate change and sustainability services. He was speaking on Thursday night on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's penultimate episode of the television program, The Drum. Yes, welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean. It's so great to have you on board. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Join me now as we listen to the segment from The Drum, and you'll find a link to the entire event in the show notes. Well, it's taken 28 global climate change meetings, but they finally said it. The nearly 200 nations represented at the Climate Change Conference in Dubai have agreed to transition away from fossil fuels. They were dabbling with saying planet Earth needed to phase out oil, coal and gas, which would have been truly historic, but could only agree to move away from their use. Nevertheless, they pledged to triple renewable energy and stop adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere by mid-century. Many commentators hailed it as a huge step forward, but small island nations like Samoa told the conference, it seems that you just gaveled the decisions when the small island states weren't in the room. Australia backed the agreement. Most important is that this COP finishes with a commitment to keep 1.5 degrees of warming alive. And we all know that the future of fossil fuels is key to that uh, ambition. Um, Adam, let's start with you. This is your um, uh, ball of wax. Uh, phase out, transition away from... Does all of that have any significance and meaning? Not as much as a lot of the media has suggested. To, to your point, a lot of people have said this is a historic agreement. This is the first time that uh, a draft COP agreement has referenced fossil fuels, let alone really? the need to trend. Yeah, believe it or not. We've been at this actually, since it, it, 1992 and no one's gone, <clears throat> I think we should say exactly. something. Yeah. Could we yeah. pop this exactly. into the... <laughs> exactly. Which is why it is a bit absurd to be golf clapping in 2023, the fact that we've referenced this term or, or summoned the ability to, to use the phrase transition away. Now, now, before I accentuate the negatives on this one, there are positives. There are things we should hold on to as a community. We need to do everything we can to, you know, draw upon the, the, the positive things that have come out of this, and there are some things that they have achieved there at COP which are important. But I, I sympathise with the Samoans. It, it, it Transitioning away, an agreement to say that we are going to transition away from fossil fuels is an agreement to agree to something we already agreed to yesterday mm. without saying it out loud. Everybody knows we need to transition away from fossil fuels. What the agreement doesn't do is provide any comfort to, say, low-lying Pacific nations that we're going to do that 
any faster. And, and commentators have said, oh, look, the fact that we've referenced the need to transition away from fossil fuels will put pressure on investors to really scrutinise the nature of their investment in fossil fuels. But at the same time, the language just below that in the draft that speaks to transitionary fuels and speaks to the need for energy security, which looks like it's been lobbed there by Business Council, I might add, gives it, the other investors everything they need to to be able to argue to continue with the status quo. So it's a, it's a status quo uh, cop, um, and it, it, is, it, is, it is not a, a, such a momentous thing um, that we, we, we have made this statement to transition away from. Why could we not say phase out? Why, 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 why at this point are we still playing semantics mm. and trying to just breathe a little more air into the, the fantasy that we don't have hard choices before us to be able to avoid catastrophic climate change? Rick, it's interesting. Um, part of the agreement was to triple renewable energy. And I know Margie's got some thoughts on the sorts of steps that need to happen with inside governments, with inside scientific organisations and corporates and all the rest of it, right? So uh, uh, the Australian Financial Review had a really good podcast on this. Bowen wants 82% renewables in the electricity grid by 2030. And that's a, you know, in corporate land they say big, hairy, audacious goal. I don't know why they say that, but they do. <laughs> Currently it's about a third. And, and they did an estimate. That means that we need to put up 40 wind towers per month, every month, until 2030, the end of the decade, and about 22,000 solar panels a day, every day, until 2030. And, and that speaks to a whole of government, and, and there's plenty of policies and we could dig right into them if we had weeks and weeks more on this program, which we don't. Um, <laughs> but it speaks to a whole of government effort that is about marshalling the levers of government, right? And now is this government up to doing that? Because the argument is the previous one wasn't. Well, I think that's certainly true. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, if we're talking about incrementalism, we'll take it at this point. Uh, because, you know, it might seem like a matter of degrees in terms of the language being used at COP28, but so is climate change. It's a matter of 1.5 or 2 at this point. The window to keep warming to 1.5 degrees is narrow and it's closing fast. So we have to at least believe that our government's going to try and do something. Um, you know, we do spend, we, you know, the Ford estimates have more than $50 billion of, you know, fossil fuel subsidies baked in. Um, so, you know, there is already substantial government investment, substantial government effort and levers being pulled in the service of the thing that we need to phase out. Uh, so, of course, we can and we should do that with renewable energies. It's not enough just to say we're going to triple renewable energies, you do actually need to stop the mm. other fossil fuels being <laughs> exhausted into the atmosphere. That is the whole point of this, right? It's not enough to say we'll get more renewable energies. You can have as much wind power as you want. If you're still burning coal, you are defeating the purpose of the entire project and we do not have much time um, to wait around anymore. Mm. We're talking on this program a lot tonight, uh, Kudzai, about how, um, how we make change and, and what change is about. And I remember speaking years ago to a former chief nurse of New South Wales who said, what you young people need to understand, and I loved her in that moment because I was 50, um, what you young people need to understand is change is not only starting to do something new, it's stopping doing something else. That's hard to accept, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think one of the, the themes that's coming out of this for me is this concept of yeah, sure, the previous government potentially didn't do as much as they could have, but that's really the challenge, is that we still are inhabiting a space where the levers exist, but there's equal opportunity to just allow things to, 
to go or to slip away. And I think if we're talking about big, hairy, audacious goals, it's also a conversation about how we change the frameworks around which we manoeuvre those levers so that it's impossible to look away. And I know there are some countries that have been very bold in actually putting statements around environment and the, the primacy of climate and health into their constitutions or other legal frameworks that actually make it very hard for governments to drop commitments or to be very vague in terms of what they're wanting to achieve. And that's something that I think we should be looking at as a nation. We've seen that at the COP level, it's very difficult to gain consensus. And when you do, it really points at incrementalism. But we're also still leaving the Pacific Island nations, the tropical nations, to bear the brunt of having to be the most vocal. When I know from a health perspective and working in refugee health, there are numerous countries that will never see a shoreline that are already suffering and, and, and we are having to deal with that. And I think it's about thinking about how do we move from a point of it being just about, you know, cycle to cycle, electoral commitments, to actually being something that's at the level of a national or a global commitment and, a, and a, you know, a security threat. And that may, I think, motivate some of those behavioural changes that we all aspire to so that it becomes something that's embedded in the way we do things as opposed to an optional or sort of an incremental target. Mm. And Maggie, you've got to get right down into the fine print, haven't mm. you? It's, you've got to make your head hurt, you've got to stay up late, you've got to not take a belt of the scotch and figure out all the sort <laughs> of know, details. Belt of the scotch may improve the conversation. <laughs> but, um, but that's what you understand, isn't it, yeah. in terms of freight. If you want to get electric trucks on the road, this is just a lot of paperwork. Well, more than that, until quite recently, um, the, the national transport ministers all got together and made it possible for you to now have the right kind of electric trucks because previously the ones you needed were two inches too wide for Australian road standards and the battery was just this much too heavy for Australian roads. So they've done something about that. But you've now got net zero commissions sort of popping up in state governments all around the country. There's no sort of consensus about how they're going to work and what the practicalities look like. And I think... There's some good people on them. There's some great people on them. And I think, you know, important that we have these global conversations, but none of it means anything if there isn't practicality on the ground. And the other really big one, and this does have relevance to Pacific nations in particular, but in a slightly different way, Way relating to their economies, um, sustainable aviation fuel. Aviation fuel gets a really bad rap all over the world in terms of being, you know, an issue in terms of carbon into the future. We have the opportunity here in Australia to establish a sustainable aviation fuel industry. Why is that important? Well, jobs, technology, the fact that we're a long-haul destination and we really need it. And, in fact, Qantas put out a paper today on how you establish a, a SAF industry. But the really critical part about it is New Zealand, no capacity really to make their own SAF. They don't have source product. Pacific Island nations, 95% of their economy is tourism. They have zero capacity to be putting together sustainable aviation fuel and maintaining that part of the economy. Australia has an, Australia has an opportunity to take a leadership role by doing some really practical things mm. and contributing to what needs to be a global outcome, but also making it possible for business and, you know, the whole country to get on board at a very practical level. Just real quick, uh, final mm. point here, Adam. You know, this loss and damage fund has been set up. Now, this mm. idea has come out of the Pacific, some really deep thinking out of the Pacific. Sometimes among law students, right, who all sit down mm. and say, what does it mean that we contribute nothing, right, to the burning of fossil fuels, but we're having the strongest effects, we're having the worst effects of it. And they've come up with this legal concept of loss and damage. You will pay us. Your prosperity is built on burning that stuff and we're bearing the brunt of it. I mean, 
do you, there's two sides of it. You can see it as, you know, what a dreadful situation, but it's also a victory. It's a diplomatic victory. I've spent a bit of time in the Pacific on this topic, and to your point, it is equal parts glorious and equal parts tragic in terms of the, the way they are mobilising around this. And, and I'm so impressed by the fact that they aren't giving themselves over to despondency. But the, there's a thing called the High Ambition Coalition, which is a collection of, of small Pacific Island nations whom are proudly taking the fight to the world on this issue because this is not an abstract concept for them. There, there are low-lying atolls in the Pacific right now that are having so much saltwater intrusion that they can no longer grow taro there anymore. So entire villages, entire ways of life are going underneath the waves. They're having to say goodbye to entire chapters of their culture. You've got the Rising Nations Initiative coming out of Tuvalu, where, where, where governments are trying to find places to send their civilization when it goes under the waves. And, and that is why, I know you want me to be quick on this topic, that, that is why I find this cop so frustrating. And I understand, Amari, uh, the point around, you know, being, uh, you know, we'll take incrementalism. But we've become so inured to pathological incrementalism in this space that we continue to think that things like the COP are going to be a mechanism for change. They're clearly not going to be. This, the, with this bizarre phenomenon where business people fly to these COPs, and it's become like a, like a corporate music festival, might I have, but they go there with their lanyard and take a selfie of themselves and put it up on LinkedIn, um, try to get into the VIP area, and they go back home when it all fails, complaining about the absence of political will. We need political will to get through this problem. But the bizarre thing is that when those corporate people go to the ballot box to vote in the people that they're going to send to the cops, they never vote for political will. No one votes for political will. No one wants top-down interventionist governments. The, the overall trend in liberal democracy since the end of the Cold war has been to not vote for political will. N name one that's been selected at the ballot box, selected the ballot box. And indeed, it's, it's centre-left people more than anybody else that are less likely to vote in an interventionist government. So we've got this bizarre situation where we want political will, apparently, at COP, but we never actually vote for it. What mm. we vote for, what citizens vote for, is they want businesses and individuals to be architects of the change in the world. They want governments to set high-level policy settings and yeah. firms and households to do it. So we've got everything we want. We've got the mandate that we want. Let's crack on and do it as, as individuals and as corporations and not expect the COP process to be the vehicle for change. Now we have a webinar from Rewiring Australia. It features Dr Saul Griffith, an engineer and entrepreneur specialising in clean and renewable energy technologies. Dr Griffith has founded a dozen companies across 20 years in Silicon Valley. He is now back in Australia and he's written a book called The Big Switch. He's also founded the organisations Rewiring America and Rewiring Australia. With him on the webinar is Dr Jesse Jenkins, who is an Assistant Professor of Mechanical Aerospace Engineering at the Anderlinga Centre of Energy and Environment at Princeton University. Dr Jenkins will be speaking on Monday night at the University of Melbourne. I have checked and sadly the university event is sold out. America's Inflation Reduction Act is the subject for Monday night's discussion at the university, but he mentioned something about that topic during this webinar, so have a listen now. Look, it's right on 10 o'clock and we're going to kick off because we don't have a lot of time. Uh, good morning, happy Friday, and welcome uh, to our webinar today. Um, thank you recording all Recording in progress. We've just started recording now. Um, but thank you all for joining us uh, this Friday morning and what is the last week before Christmas, it seems. It's really great to have you all here and be able to talk with Jesse and Saul today. My name's Kate Minster. I'm the Managing Director of Rewiring Australia, and I'm just going to make some opening remarks before I pass on to the two men you're all here to hear from. 
Um, but I want to begin also by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on the outskirts of Nan today on the Rudgery Nation of the Kulin people. Um, I want to pay my respects to their elders past and present. Now today we're here to talk to Jesse Jenkins and Saul Griffith about their experience of the Inflation Reduction Act, also known as the IRA or the IRA. Uh, it is a piece of legislation introduced last year in the States um, that really saw the largest investment we've ever seen on the clean energy transformation. Uh, and a big part of that was electrification uh, and how the, the federal government is going to play a role in fueling households, businesses and industries to electrify the clean energy. Uh, I can't say much more about the uh, IRA in front of Saul and Jesse because they are here to be the experts. Um, but it's a year on, a year and a bit on, and we're really keen to hear how it's going and what it means for Australia. Uh, just a bit of housekeeping, we've got 45 minutes today. Uh, we're going to try and wrap up on time, uh, but I've also got two heavyweights here and a lot of participants uh, with us today. Uh, so Jesse and Saul are going to speak, um, uh, give their presentation shortly. Uh, I'll ask them a couple of questions. If we have time, we'll throw to some questions from the audience. So if you've got a burning question you want to ask, pop it in the chat. We've also got Jess and Kristen from our team at Rewiring Australia who'll be keeping an eye on that chat during the discussion. Um, so thank you, Kristen, for that little wave. Um, and yeah, so before I pass to our guests, just a bit of a refresher on who we are at Rewiring Australia. We're a research and advocacy organisation uh, launched back in 2021 by um, Dan Cass and Saul Griffith. Um, and we exist to electrify everything and accelerate that electrification. Saul's going to run through some numbers with you, but there is no pathway to net zero without the electrification of our households, businesses and industry. Uh, it also helps that electrification is going to save energy users money, which is a core part of the work that we do. Our work is driven by data-based research, making the case of why electrification makes economic and climate sense. We pair this with very targeted policy advocacy policy interventions and we advocate fiercely uh, with governments at all levels of implementing those. We also spent a lot of time talking about electrification. No doubt this year you've seen Dan and Saul in the news quite a bit talking about the investment that we need from our federal government and why households should make the decision to electrify. Uh, but our whole team at Rewiring Australia, we're a small but busy team, and we've spent the year in conference halls, community halls, boardrooms, and on Zooms talking about electrification too. And part of that's about building our electrification army, which sounds terrifying and I think I need to find a new anecdote, uh, but it is so critical to our work and has seen us win big in 2023. So if you'll indulge me for a few more minutes, I just want to give you a recap of the 2023 year that was the year of electrification. So this year we spent a lot of time in Canberra and we collaborated with climate, the climate movement, industry, unions and civil society to put the ask on the government to invest in electrification. And we were pretty effective. This year, we had the first electrification budget. The federal government committed a billion dollars in finance, the Clean Energy, Fi Clean Energy Finance Corporation, to support households electrify and upgrade their homes. This was a huge down payment, shows the investment this government is willing to make in supporting the electrification revolution. And that wasn't it. Uh, also in the federal budget, we saw $300 million worth of uh, funding allocated to upgrading social housing, 
working in partnership with states, and we've seen a number of state governments commit to matching that money and start the process of retrofitting their um, social housing to remove gas, improve efficiency and electrifying. Uh, we also see at the federal level $300 million for businesses in tax incentives to electrify and $100 million to support councils electrify their assets. It was truly a huge win at the federal level uh, with this government showing their willingness to invest. And in 2024, we're going to continue this advocacy work, uh, pushing for the uh, rollout of the $1 billion worth of finance, uh, but also playing a key role in shaping what that looks like. You may have seen uh, last uh, you may have seen last week um, a, a, an article in The Guardian uh, talking about the work that we'll be doing in 2024, partnering with the Australian National University, exploring how things like income contingent loans will make finance for electrification more accessible for more households. Uh, at a federal level, we're also seeing some bipartisan support for electrification, which is going to be critical if we're going to win and we're going to encourage all households and businesses to electrify. The Liberal Senator Andrew Bragg uh, will be chairing uh, and has announced a Senate electrification inquiry. Rewiring Australia made a submission to this inquiry, along with hundreds of organisations and individuals. Um, I've spoken to the organisers of the inquiry and they were quite blown away of how much interest there has been in this particular Senate inquiry, of people telling their stories of how they electrified, why, and some of the barriers they've hit. And in the next 12 months, they're going to be doing a tour around the country and hearing these stories direct through hearings. And we look forward to participating. Uh, at a state level, there's also been um, some big wins um, Obviously, that matched funding with the federal government on electrifying social housing has been critical and governments have continued to show investment incentive schemes um, that support electrification um, through their various state-based programs. But the standout winner has to be the Victorian government and Lily Dan Minister D'Ambrosio with their announcement of banning new gas connections uh, next year. A truly bold policy decision uh, that Rewiring Australia welcomes wholeheartedly and looks forward uh, to supporting the Victorian government in the rollout of that policy in the new year. Um, but all of these wins have come off the back of building an incredible supporter base across the country of which you've all been a part of. So I want to say um, a sincere thank you to you all uh, and also talk a bit about some fantastic work we'll be doing in the new year and have started this year of galvanising um, the support we've seen and putting it to action in local communities. Uh, so we've done some great work uh, this year of um, sorry, I jumped back and to say Saul was blown away when he did his book tour of the, the localised support and um, passion that people want to bring to electrifying their own communities. And based on that, we've also been inundated with people wanting to start local campaigns of how they can encourage their friends and neighbours to electrify, um, talk to their local councils about what they can do to electrify their assets and to support community infrastructure. Uh, so based on that, we've been working with a number of groups uh, this year and hope to expand into the new year of what is designing and implementing localised campaigns and action plans in communities look like to help accelerate and drive electrification. There's been some fantastic research released this year by Green Buildings Australia that found we need to electrify about 500 homes every day in order to meet our targets of emissions reductions. Uh, and we can't do that without having um, armies in every community that are talking about how you electrify and supporting their friends and neighbours do that. So thank you for your support in that. And next year, we're going to be looking at hosting more webinars like today, which puts some pressure on us all to make sure that it's a success. But um, I think that uh, we'd really love to um, share some more of our knowledge and hear from you all as well in the new year. 
Um, so that's me. I'm going to pass on now to our, uh, our main guests, the main stars. I'm going to introduce them both, but then throw to Saul. Saul Griffith uh, probably needs no introduction to you all here. He's a writer, um, an author, sorry, an author, an inventor, uh, and a scientist and an engineer. Uh, he uh, co-founded Rewiring Australia, but also co-founded Rewiring America, where he played a really instrumental role in the Inflation Reduction Act and its design. Uh, and he speaks to us today about that shared knowledge between Australia and America in this front. Uh, and we've got Jesse Jenkins, who may not be familiar with you, uh, as familiar with you as Saul. Uh, Jesse is an assistant professor at Princeton University, focusing on macro scale energy systems. Uh, he is here in Australia on holidays with his family and has very generously given Rewiring Australia two days um, to spend with him. With Yesterday, we had some fantastic meetings with federal departments and agencies sharing the learnings from the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and American Energy System uh, and answering lots of questions around what that means here. He was received very well uh, and people have been incredibly grateful for the wealth of knowledge he offers and just a big thank you to Jesse for, for spending some time with us uh, while he's here on holidays. So I'm going to pass now over to Saul. Thank you. Saul, you're on mute. Thank you, Kate, and thank you, Jesse, for being here. I certainly hope that Princeton gives you full tenure and full professorship on the back of your work on the IRA. Um, it would be well deserved. I'm gonna I'm gonna start by doubling down on Kate's um, army proposal. It's I think we actually need to build two armies in Australia. Um, there's the advocacy army that we're building here today, which is extraordinary, and I think everyone both participating in and listening to this call is, is part of building that army. We we still have a lot of, we still have to make our climate response and all of government response. So that means large federal policy, uh, such as the Inflation Reduction Act in the US, such as the electrification in the Australian budget this year. Um, we need to get more policy wins like that, but we need to translate that work down into state governments and ultimately on the ground into communities uh, through local council and through community action. So advocacy army all the way through Australian politics is important. Um, we need to be getting the Australian government to invest at least $50 billion this year if they wish to be as uh, ambitious as the US government. And I'm actually hoping we can be more ambitious. And I very carefully use the word invest, not spend, because I think people are now confuse the idea that we need to spend versus this is an investment that will pay dividends. But the other army that I'm really hoping we also build is uh, the tradie army, which will really be the front line of defence against climate change. Um, I'm glad Jesse is nodding. I was going to have to thought I'd have to translate and tell him that a tradie is Australian for contractor. So these are the skilled uh, tradespeople who will on the ground be electrifying our homes, installing vehicle charging infrastructure, building out our solar and our wind farms. Um, this is really you know, there's a small, it's a small army of advocates like us, and it needs an enormous army of skilled technicians to implement this energy transition. Anyway, with that, I'm going to show a couple of slides quickly. Uh, hopefully you can tell me that this is working. Um, first, and I really, last week, I, if you asked me the odds of being able to say this, I would have said zero. But literally this week at COP28, which is the annual climate 
summit of the United Nations, um, quite an extraordinary thing happened. Not quite as extraordinary as we, we would like, um, meaning big climate activists would like words that are phase out of fossil fuels by 2040 or something similar. But in spite of that, nearly every country in the world has actually agreed to transition away from fossil fuels. And it's extraordinary that in a fossil fuel nation um, that the COP actually produced this language. That is obviously the main driver of climate change. Why I think that is an extraordinary movement is that's going to put a huge wind behind the sails. Sort of, It means the penny will continue to drop in order to transition away from fossil fuels. Really, our principal strategy is to electrify everything. And I think the statement at COP28 that we are and the whole world is agreeing to transition away from fossil fuels will only throw hopefully electric fuels on this on this fire. Uh, however, the reason the activists aren't entirely satisfied is there is still an ambition gap. The ambition gap is a way of describing the difference between what governments have committed to. And remember, it's a non-binding commitment at COP28. So that means we will transition away, but there's no deadline. Uh, that means really the, the world's commitments still look like 2.5 to 3 degrees of warming, um, which is a big ambition gap from the 1.5 or 2 degrees that we should really be pushing for. And that means we need to figure out every possible way to go faster than the market otherwise would, or as I think about it, market transformation. How do we make sure that the decision to electrify the machines of the world, whether they be on the supply side generating the electricity or the demand side, like the cars in your homes using that electricity, we need to make the decisions to buy those electric machines, the easiest decision, the cheapest decision, and have a skilled workforce ready to deliver that um, product to us. Uh, I'm not going to say much about the IRA because Jesse is here and he'll say it a lot better. I'm just going to give you this one slide, uh, which is a summary. This is breaking down every, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to test you all on the tiny little details here at the end of the show, but the, it is to say that electrification really comes through as the principal strategy. If you break down every single component, on the supply side, that's a huge number of tax credits for building out renewable energy and zero emission electricity. Um, on the demand side, that's finance for electric vehicles, finance for households, um, discrete subsidies for all of the machines in households and small businesses, and even some incentives to manufacture all of those electrical machines. This is what we're pushing for in Australia for 2024 as the sort of big goal um, policy ambition for rewiring Australia. Just to emphasize um, the importance of market transformation and doing what you can now in terms of emissions reductions, what the climate says is the, the, the earlier you get emissions reductions, the more they count because it's a cumulative carbon dioxide problem. This is a new way of looking at Australia's climate emissions. Uh, there's a lot of received wisdom in politics that has us looking at our climate problem as a supply side problem. So how do we decarbonize industry and how do we decarbonize the existing grid? This is a different way of looking at it. This looks at the emissions in Australia below the dotted line. That's the emissions we export as fossil fuels. That's what we have to transition away from. This traditionally drives a, a fear in the government. How do we replace the income from those fossil fuels with something else? Australia needn't worry. We shipped 55% of the world's lithium last year. We have a huge amount of nickel, copper, 
all of the required metals. That will be where Australia wins over the next 50 years in producing the metals required for this energy transition. Above the dotted line is our, low, uh, you know, the emissions that occur within Australia. You can actually see I've broken that down into trade. So actually um, about 40% of emissions within Australia's economy are producing our fossil fuels and other things that we export. So when we change that export economy, we will actually change um, zero out the emissions on those trade emissions for the large part. And above that is the domestic emissions, um, which is about 60% of our emissions. And that is the emissions of our households, our small businesses, uh, et cetera. And you can see I've got green, orange, and red. That's a very coarse description or summary of green is technology that is ready to go and deploy today. That's rooftop solar, that's electric vehicles, that's heat pumps for your water heating, heat pumps for your space heating. Um, that's batteries, et cetera. And the reason I emphasize that is traditionally, you know, if we only consider the supply side in a government climate response, we're going to miss the fact that you have to decarbonize the demand side and the supply, uh, supply side at the same rate. And in fact, we're going to get the most emission reductions in the near term in this domestic economy. 42% of our domestic emissions actually happen at decisions you make around the kitchen table. Again, that's what car do you drive? What heats your home? Where does your electricity come from? Uh, it's actually another 28 or 29% is in small businesses and the commercial sector. So really about 70% if you believe that people also make their decisions about their small businesses around the same kitchen tables. So this is where we have a huge opportunity in the near term emissions reductions in Australia. And, you know, as I like to say, this is how do we electrify the, you know, the five or six things in your life, the infrastructure of your life, electrify your cars, your kitchens, your bathing, your space heating, and do as much of that with rooftop solar, which we know in Australia is the, the cheapest delivered energy in human history. Uh, so after financing, Jesse will probably boggle his mind because this is not true in the US, but after financing rooftop solar in Australia is three or four cents per kilowatt hour installed. Um, and that's the wind behind our sales. So that's the the global contribution Australia has to boast about and show is like we've had this incredible regulatory success on rooftop solar. That's going to make the energy transition cheaper. Let's go. Of course, we will also need big wind and big solar and big transition. So hopefully if we prove the economic benefits to households, they'll also become the army fighting for offshore wind farms and large-scale renewables, which are the installations to make sure we have 100% reliable energy systems. I'm going to finish on this one slide, which is a nice segue for Jesse. Um, the biggest climate bill in human history was called the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. You might all sort of wonder a little bit, you know, why would you call a climate bill the Inflation Reduction Act? And this is data from Australia, and this is actually um, really part of the story that electrification itself is anti-inflationary. This is a 30-year history of the total energy cost of running an Australian household, including its petrol and its diesel, including its natural gas, including its electricity. You can see that it's consistently rose at or slightly above the rate of inflation for the past 30 years. But the extraordinary thing you can say is that if you financed an Australian household today to buy solar, to buy electric vehicles, and to buy electric heat for its household, the ongoing cost of running that household remains fixed because you're just paying finance charges 20 years into the future for those purchases. And so that is quite literally anti-inflationary. 
The question now is, is the investment for a household to purchase those things, because you have to spend a lot of money to save that money in the long term, does that return positively? And the answer for Australia is it now does. And this is why we're building a macroeconomic argument for the incumbent government here that if the government helps Australians invest in their domestic and household infrastructure and electrification, that the country could be saving three or four hundred billion dollars a year by the end of this decade because of the consequences of this chart. So I'll leave it there. That's the this success story is Australia's contribution to speeding up the world on this very critical energy transition. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, it's a pleasure to be here in uh, in Melbourne and and to join Rewiring Australia for the today, yesterday and today. Um, learning more about uh, Australia's energy transition and sharing what I can from the U.S. perspective. Um, delighted to share that we are making significant progress in the U.S. after um, many years of, of delay at the federal level um, with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act and the infrastructure law uh, in the last Congress that are truly historic uh, advancements in the U.S. energy policy and energy transition landscape. What these laws effectively amount to is the fact that the full financial might of the U.S. federal government is now firmly aligned behind a clean energy transition. That's really a game changer. There are few forces in the world as powerful as the purse strings of the U.S. federal government, and having the financial incentives provided by these laws as tailwinds behind the clean energy transition is truly a game changer for us in the United States, and I think by extension, hopefully, uh, spilling over to the world um, as a whole. What the Inflation Reduction Act effectively does is puts clean energy on sale for all Americans. It does that through a set of tax credits, grants, rebates, and loan guarantees that will be worth well over half a trillion dollars uh, over the next decade and, and more beyond that, really comprehensively across the board, making all of the various solutions we need in our climate toolkit much cheaper for, um, for everyone to, to adopt in an attempt to basically shift the economic incentives behind millions of different decisions that you or I might make about how to heat our homes or what vehicles to drive. Businesses are making on a consistent basis about what kinds of fleet uh, vehicles to purchase, how to um, power their industrial processes, uh, where to get their electricity, et cetera. All those decisions have to be shifted in the favor of the clean side of the ledger. Can of course do that with carbon pricing as uh, Australia has uh, experimented with and we've had our own failed uh, attempts to, to get off the ground in, in the United States. Of course makes fossil energy more expensive and internalizes the damages that those fuels cause, which is an appropriate prescription from economics, but of course challenging politically. And so the other alternative is to make clean energy cheaper, right? And that's the approach that the Inflation Reduction Act uses. So either way, we have to make the financial incentives line up or it's gonna be difficult to get the pace of transition that we need out of, you know, people have to make these decisions out of the goodness of their own heart and not uh, in the interest of their own pocketbooks. So what we see in the Inflation Reduction Act is truly a comprehensive effort to support energy efficiency and electrification through tax credits and rebates uh, for individuals uh, and for households and for businesses. Uh, incentives for electric vehicles, again, both a personal vehicle tax credit for, for folks who, who buy their own vehicles, but also a commercial vehicle tax credit that's available for businesses and leased vehicles. Uh, Long-term support for clean electricity of all forms. We've had on-again, off-again tax credits that expire every few years and really throw the industry into chaos as these extensions are debated in Congress every couple of years. Now we have long-term clarity as to the, the strength of these incentives over at least the next decade, um, the law establishes a production tax credit or investment tax credit for all forms of carbon-free electricity that's available 
until we cut greenhouse gas emissions in the electricity sector to 25% of our 2022 level, so 75% reduction from emissions uh, at the time the law was passed. That's unlikely to happen until around 2035. Um, and so really uh, any electricity projects, that clean electricity projects that commence construction through the next 12 or 13 years will be able to claim full advantage of these electricity, uh, clean electricity tax credits. There are also new tax credits established by the law for clean hydrogen production and clean fuels like sustainable aviation fuel, uh, expanded incentives for carbon capture and storage, and a new credit for direct air capture technologies that remove CO2 directly from the atmosphere and store them. And via the bipartisan infrastructure law, which passed in 2021, um, and which included a wide range of infrastructure investments, um, as well as a set of energy uh, innovation uh, policies, including technology demonstration programs for uh, a range of less uh, mature or more nascent technologies that uh, need to be scaled up over the next decade, uh, place-based hubs for the build-out of, of hydrogen uh, and direct air capture, and support for network infrastructure like electricity transmission expansion and CO2 pipelines. What all of these policies effectively do in aggregate is put Uncle Sam's, uh, Uncle, Uncle Sam's thumb firmly on the scale uh, on the favor of clean energy choices, and this is already having a significant effect uh, across the economy. It's worth noting, though, that the Inflation Reduction Act is more than just an effort to shift the economic calculus and the different decision -making, you know, decisions that we're making or to accelerate uh, electrification and, and decarbonization. It really embeds a number of different policy goals um, at, at once, which uh, all should be taken stock of. That includes efforts to make clean energy cheap, not just in subsidized terms, but in real dollar terms by driving uh, innovation and real cost declines in the underlying technologies. As we know, we've seen the cost of wind and solar and lithium ion batteries plummet over the last decade, thanks to public policy support that helped scale up these technologies when they were nascent, expensive, quote unquote, alternative energy technologies, to the point where they're now mainstream affordable options that can scale at hundreds of gigawatts of deployment per year. And that's effectively what we need to do to complete the rest of the toolkit of technologies that will be helpful in the 2030s and 2040s as we transition to a fully net zero economy. And so there's a variety of policies in these bills to accelerate demonstration, scale up and cost declines for these technologies, as well as long-term commercial deployment subsidies for that early, that first decade of scale up. That includes hydrogen, carbon capture, advanced nuclear, direct air capture, low carbon liquids, et cetera. There's a lot of policy incentives in these laws to also reshape supply chains, in particular to decouple from China, overwhelming reliance on Chinese manufacturing and components for solar, wind, batteries, and critical minerals. Um, that includes tax credits to directly manufacture these products in the United States. Actually, the guidance for those rules just came out this morning in, in America. Um, that includes uh, uh, direct production incentives for uh, U.S. facilities that produce uh, solar uh, and wind components across the full supply chain. Uh, critical minerals of all kinds of types um, and battery cell uh, and pack assembly, um, as well as a set of demand pull incentives that tie our tax credits for clean electricity deployment, batteries and electric vehicles to sourcing domestic content. So not only are we subsidizing the supply side, but we're encouraging developers of clean hydrogen projects or clean electricity projects or batteries or EVs, um, uh, EV manufacturers to source their products from, from the United States as well. Um, as well as from friendly countries. So particularly on the battery assembly and critical minerals front, um, we, uh, the, the law contemplates sourcing a supply chain that extends across North America and other countries with free trade agreements with the United States, chief amongst those, um, Australia. There are also grants for battery recycling and critical minerals production in the uh, infrastructure law that support this development as well. 
Another key objective embedded throughout these laws is improvement of environmental justice outcomes and the reduction of pollution and improvements in, in air quality and public health. There's about $60 billion of investments across the Inflation Reduction Act targeted towards improvements in environmental justice to reduce harmful pollution in the most environmentally overburdened communities across the country. The law as a whole will dramatically reduce air pollution, saving tens of thousands of American lives um, that would otherwise be lost to, to pollution impacts. Um, and there's a set of provisions to try to ensure more equitable access to electrification, efficiency, and clean energy solutions to those in the lower income brackets that typically don't have the purchasing power uh, to buy these technologies on their own. Um, and that includes a particular electrification support through state-managed whole home electrification and efficiency rebate programs um, designed to get out to, to lower and middle income uh, households. Um, and a new green bank program that provides um, about $30 billion in funding to capitalize state level green banks uh, to provide concessionary financing to, to uh, advance these goals. Now we have 90 seconds from Yale Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lazowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Daryl Travis's wife Jennifer loves Christmas lights. So each year, he turns their Vancouver, Washington home into a holiday wonderland with light-up trees, candy canes, and snowflakes that flash and change colors to the beat of music. And every year, she is always amazed about the new things that I add every year just to give it to her as a Christmas gift. The display takes him months to plan, but it's cheap for him to operate because the couple has a 21-kilowatt solar array on their roof. Travis says for most of the year, the solar produces more energy than the couple uses. So he banks credits with the power company and then uses them to pay for the Christmas display. And he makes the display efficient by using LED lights and flashing them. If you're blinking or flashing a light once a minute, then the rest of that minute you're not using power and you're saving power. Over time, his solar power display has become a local attraction. So although it was created for one person, it now brings joy to many more. The fun part is standing outside, watching the people watch the display. I get to hear the oohs and ahs, and I get to see the just happiness it brings to everybody around me. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. Next, we have a story by Hannah Ritchie. It has the headline, A Global Harvest keeping pace in a warming world. The story begins. It's been a hot year, the warmest year on record, with several months 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures. Next year is likely to be even warmer as the El Nino, the warm phase of the natural ENSO cycle, continues into spring. It could be the first year that we temporarily pass 1.5 degrees Celsius although probably temporarily. Food security is my biggest worry about climate change. Many of our current crop varieties may see a decline in yields as the planet continues to warm. In some regions, this could be severe. Now, we're not helpless in this situation. We can prevent at least some of these losses with different crop varieties, irrigation, farming inputs, and technological innovation. We're therefore in a race. Can innovation and agricultural productivity keep pace with the changing climate? So far, the answer has been yes. Let's turn now to a story from Pearls and Irritations. It's by Jeff Davies. 
It has the headline, Cop Out, Apocalypse Next. The story begins. The COP28 conference in Dubai on allegedly reducing greenhouse gas emissions has come and gone with the usual proclamations of triumph. Wow, this time they actually mentioned fossil fuels and the need to transition away from burning them. But the fossil miners claim gas is a transitional fuel, so that means business as usual. Our own Labour government is complicit and is still approving extraction projects. It has not removed our annual 11 billion subsidies of fossil fuels and is still allowing emissions to rise. One can read different things into the deliberately ambiguous final statement of COP28. The reality is that unless the world gets very serious, very soon, it will be too late, no matter how one may spin it as heralding the eventual end of fossil fuels. It is commonly reported that we are on a trajectory to reach 2.9 degrees Celsius of warming by the end of the century but it's rarely explained that this only takes account of humanity's direct effects. Natural feedbacks would long since have kicked in that would have drive heating much higher. We are really on a trajectory to apocalypse. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you along. Now, I've still got a screen full of stories about the climate crisis, but I just simply can't get to them all. So make sure you check out the show notes, as you'll find links in there to all the stories I just can't get to. Meanwhile, I'd love you to follow this podcast, because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. And beyond that, I'd also love to hear from you as to what you think about this podcast. What do you think? Am I doing the right thing, the wrong thing, good or bad? Should I do better? Don't hold back. Please let me know. You can contact me via email at r.mclean, the number seven, at icloud.com. And I urge you to share this. Yes, share it on your network. Share it with your friends. Share it with as many people as you know, because we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis. It's an existential threat, and it's worsening every day. Yes, every day it's getting worse. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Now take care and stay safe.